Welcome back to Feminist Book Club, the podcast. We're not just about feminist books. We are here for social justice, literature, and media in all its forms. But we do that through an intersectional feminist lens. Thanks for being here. Let's get started. Happy National Poetry Month. I don't know about you, but I don't want to live in a world without poets. We're so lucky to have these beautiful souls in our world. And to celebrate, I'd like to invite you to Feminist Book Club's Virtual Poetry Night on April 30th. It's at 7 p.m. Central Time, which is 8 p.m. Eastern and 5 p.m. Pacific. We've invited some of our favorite poet friends and asked our community to join us in a night of poetry readings. Not a member? No problem. This event is open to the public and it will be ASL interpreted. Click the link in the show notes to register for this gorgeous event celebrating poetry and poets alike. Greetings, friends. I'm Mariquita Guerrera, and I am here with Lynn Cullen. Lynn is the best-selling author of The Sisters of Summit Avenue. Twain's End and Mrs. Poe, which was named an NPR 2013 Great Read and an Indie Next List selection. Lynn's most recent book, The Woman with a Cure, is an historical fiction exploring the life of Dr. Dorothy Horstman, an incredible scientist to whom we owe so much. Lynn, thank you so much for being with us here today. Thank you. I'm thrilled to be here. So I gave an extremely, extremely short synopsis of The Woman with the Cure which is this, your wonderful new book. But I was hoping you could tell our listeners a little bit more about the book and what motivated you to write it. Okay. Well, I'll start with the pandemic. The last great pandemic before our COVID pandemic was polio. It was different because, for one, it did not kill so many hundreds of thousands of people. It was much slower, widespread than that. But the bad thing about it, bad things, I mean, they're horrific things, actually, is that it uh, preyed on children, babies, children, young adults. Didn't get older people, just the young folks. And it was a very painful disease. And if it didn't kill the children that were paralyzed with it, it often left them permanently paralyzed or dealing with the effects for their life. And it had a cumulative effect, even though not as many people were killed in a year's time. I mean, way fewer. But it's the first pandemic was in the 16 here in the U.S. and, and around the world. And for 39 years, they had nothing to fight it with. It was like our first year of the COVID epidemic with one, you know, and all those other summers. It always happened in the summer. So anybody who would deliver people from that would be considered a god. And indeed, we've all heard about Jonas Salk and Albert Sabin, and many have heard about their conflict, their great race to find the, the best and the first polio vaccine. But as fascinating as they are, from the start, I always wondered, what about the women? Weren't there women? Was it? Really, just Sabin coming down from the mountain with their flask of vaccine, you know, saving the world. I thought, surely there were women. And so the book answers that question. Yeah, you, you talk a lot about the ways in which the contributions of women have been ignored or forgotten or diminished throughout the book. And, and there is a point where Albert Sabin is sort of, he's frustrated and he's talking about how this work wasn't really all done by Jonas Salk. Like all these other women were involved and his wife 
goes, huh, all women. They were all women, huh? <laughs> you know, and, and it yeah. was, it was uh, because we don't really hear their stories. No. You, know, you even have a character in there, Beryl Beasley, who is side noted that she has a PhD in mathematics, but she is Dr. Sabin's secretary. Was she a real person or did was she a amalgamation of individuals that really truly experienced a life like this? Well, Beryl Beasley, she actually was the secretary for John Paul at Yale. She's one of my, based on just a composite character, that this happened, you know, the few women who maybe got advanced degrees, as hard as that was, they had a hard time finding work. She ended up as a secretary. Now, someone I didn't make up, Sabin's lab assistant, Barbara Johnson, who uh, was, you know, working shoulder to shoulder with him on using the tissues from polio victims and trying to figure out this virus. Well, she touched some, you know, live virus and she was one of the few people who contracted polio from her research. And she got the worst kind. And she was, you know, I believe her legs were permanently paralyzed. But this did not stop her. She came back as his physician. She may not have use of her legs, but she had use of her brain. And so she was instrumental in putting the, the statistics for his research. So, you know, in fact, I thought I was going to write the book from, from her point of view when I first started out. Because I, I thought that was so cool that she's like, I don't care. I'm going to contribute. But then Dorothy Horseman just kind of stole the show. And I did some more research on her and saw her big achievements. Yeah. How did you go about finding the information about her and doing the research about her life? Well, yeah, it was hard to find because she's not mentioned much in the polio books, you know, maybe a little sentence here or there. So I had to do some digging. And fortunately, Yale, who was her employer for most of her career, recently had written articles, like I think about 2019, started to, you know, write some about her. So there was some online information and it was starting to get out there. But I used magazines actually a lot for getting a feel for the period and information because, you know, magazines were so important back in the 50s, 40s, 30s, 60s even. So I was looking in Life magazine. There's an article about the miracle of Hickory, and this is Hickory, North Carolina, near Charlotte. And this is in 1944, and they had a horrible outbreak. And it was so bad that the hospitals just totally filled. They didn't even have ambulances to bring the the kids into the hospital, they used hearses to do so. And so um, the head of March of Dimes said, you know what, we're going to build a hospital in 10 days and, and bring all the children to that. And they did. It was rough. It was a very rough hospital. And like the admissions tent, for example, was, I mean, the admissions was a tent. The nurses stayed in tents. You know, it was very rough, but they accomplished their mission. And so Life magazine. Alfred Eisenstadt was the photographer, the great Alfred Eisenstadt. And I, I was enjoying the picture of, you know, the, the roughness of the situation. But there was Dorothy Horseman. She was showing families how to use a fly trap because at that time they, they thought 
people who might be carried by flies. So they're trying to trap them and see if indeed the virus is found in the flies. She also was taking blood samples from all the the patients in the area. Because she was, her job at the time with Yale, part of it, besides teaching, was with the Yale Polio Study Unit, which flew all over the world wherever there was an outbreak. But here she was, this very tall woman with kind of wacky hair <laughs> and a big smile, was showing up in all these pictures. And I would just... They had such a fun time getting to know her through those pictures. And then and then I talked to the test for Dorothy Hortzman. In 2019, Yale commissioned someone to do a portrait of her because all they had in their medical hall of fame was this crummy little photograph of her instead of you know, these gorgeous portraits. Dorothy Horstman, who discovered uh, two major things connected to polio and the rubella vaccine as well, contact with the purchasist who's in England and he provided me with more pictures. So I got to know her that way as well. So, you know, it took some digging, but I found that, my gosh, she she touched our lives. Every single one of our lives has been touched by this woman. Yeah. You know, we've just been through three years of this pandemic and it's affected people pretty significantly. But prior mm -hmm. to that, you know, there was a whole generation of people that hadn't gone through anything like this, you know, uh, and thinking about how all these families must have been feeling having children, raising children during, you know, what, what could be a very scary time. And here, Dorothy Horseman had such a profound impact on the lives of those families and the lives of every family moving forward, even now, as you said, with the rubella vaccine that, you know, is just standard childhood vaccine. And mm -hmm. still, you know, I, I've heard nothing about her prior to now, prior to your book, which really brings her to life and really like creates this beautiful world around her. And you just really fall in love with Dr. Horseman. Because I fell in love with her. You know, I just, she was so amazing. And the way that she... One of the ways that she's touched every person here was in 59, they did a vaccine trial for the oral polio vaccine. And there had been some trouble with the salt vaccine. So there were no vaccine trials allowed in the U.S. for a little while, while the FDA was getting their act together, which I should say affected, affects us to this day. The FDA is much more stringent. You can have much more confidence in them. I did from the start with our vaccine, with the COVID vaccine, because I know that they just will not allow mishaps. And they, by the way, they, of course, fixed, they found out what the problem was with the SOC vaccine. It's, it was a manufacturer situation, right? Exactly. It was yeah. not with the vaccine itself. Yeah. And they, they have nailed that down, of course. And, you know, it's good. But anyhow, so... She was called to oversee this vaccine trial in the USSR. They had their polio too, and they said, you know, we'll take any vaccine. Even though we're in this Cold War with them, they said, we'll take your vaccine. And so they got Sabin. He actually delivered little vials of live vaccine in his pockets. He went over there, and, excuse me, and they, 77 million people ended up in this trial. And in order to 
verify for the world uh, if this was a safe and effective vaccine. The USSR said, we'll allow one Western scientist to come evaluate it. Because, you know, it's Cold War. They, they weren't pleased about having any They didn't want us there. there. <laughs> no. And so they allowed one person, pick one person. The WHO picked Dorothy Horseman, who, even though she's unheralded, was renowned for her work. So in the, in the scientific world. So she went there and yes, she oversaw the 77 million person trial. And she said, it is safe and effective. And immediately in the US, we are allowed to get that vaccine. So when I was a kid, I got the vaccine on a sugar cube. You might've heard of kids, school kids. Yeah, I mean, whole cities turned out just blocks long of people getting the sugar cube. Anyhow, we all got our sugar cube and children who came afterward, like my own children, when they were immunized, got their oral polio vaccine on Dorothy Horseman's say-so. Yeah. Her story is so tremendous. And I really, well, I really appreciate all the work you put into this, all of the the historical foundations around it and and the world you built for us so that we could have a peak of her life and a peak of all the work that she did and see this tremendous, incredible, vital person who's had such a hand in keeping us safe and in transforming pediatric medicine. Can you tell us a little bit about where folks can find you and find your work? Are there any resources you'd like to direct folks to? Well, my website is lynncullen.com. And I can be reached on, on Facebook, you know, just Lynn Cullen and Instagram. I'm always thrilled to talk with anyone who wants to talk about the book and, and the subject. So I welcome people reaching out. If folks are looking for me, they can find me on Instagram at O underscore Murray. It was absolutely a delight to read this book. It's absolutely a delight to talk with you, Lynn Cullen. And I hope folks pick up your book, The Woman with the Cure, about Dr. Dorothy Horstman. Thank you. Thank you so much for having me. This has been a joy. Hello, my name is Ashley, and I am joined today with Annika Samaya. She is here from Empower Her Voice. Annika, thank you for joining us today. Yeah, I'm so excited to be here. Thanks for having me. So my first question for you is, what is your definition of feminism? That's a really good question. And I think it, even within the Empower Voice team, I think it varies. I see feminism as both a way to view the world and also as sort of an objective truth about the world, the idea that men and women are equal. So I think that you can talk about a feminist viewpoint, women rewriting, you know, for example, fairy tales from a feminist viewpoint. One of my favorite authors does that. And it's re, you know, it's reworking a narrative that has traditionally been traditionally been very influenced by the patriarchy and traditional gender roles, reworking that so that women are more empowered. And that 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 notion of feminism sort of puts the power on women. Oh, let's give women the power. Let's give women the spotlight. But there is also an aspect of feminism that deals with equality and women are not any better than men. This It's just a fact that our experiences are as important as theirs. But I think that to get to that point where we can, where everyone can see Everyone can see and be on board with that notion of equality. We do need to spotlight women. So my definition of feminism includes spotlighting women, but to achieve this notion of equality. That is the goal. Yes. And what is Empower Her Voice? 
Empower Voice is where a group of feminists, people interested in gender politics, activists, artists that came together to create a space for women and non-binary individuals to sort of share their experiences because these are experiences of people who wouldn't otherwise get to talk about how they see their identity, how they interact with the world because of their identity. And so it's really just a space for reflection and dialogue about issues that wouldn't otherwise be brought out. So our literary magazine Dialogue tries to do that. We reach out to writers around the globe to sort of collate experiences that wouldn't otherwise be, you know, at the forefront of your Instagram feed or that you wouldn't otherwise be reading about on the internet. And how, what does art and activism create for a more engaged society as you all work to do at Empower for Boys? For me, art is a super important part of activism because today a lot of people get their information about social issues through social media, the internet, like I said, right? And a lot of the times you're bombarded with statistics, more statistics, more statistics. And yes, that is useful information, but I feel like it often leaves us feeling disempowered, detached from issues rather than poised for action. And I think that's where art is so important. It creates that bridge. Art gives you a window into the life of someone else in a way that, you know, facts about 11,000 people, a huge group of people wouldn't. It gives you an insight into the mind of an individual. And that's why I think poems, paintings, plays, just works of art in general can be so powerful in getting people to really identify with an issue and getting them committed to it. And I think that when I think about our team, our volunteers at Empower Her Voice, and I list, I've interviewed people, I hear their stories of what got them involved in feminism. I've noticed that so much of the time it's art, it's books they've read, it's paintings they've seen, it's, it's, it's things like that. It's the intangible. Uh, that has sort of driven inspiration. And I think that's the role art plays. And one of my other questions is, how do you see men in feminist movements? And how would you like to see men in feminist movements? How So I'm going to start with the second part of your question. How do you like to see men in feminist movements? Often, you know, we we give women advice. This is what you can do. This is how you can change things. This is how you can create better opportunities for yourself. But I think that we need to change the narrative or maybe not even change narrative but add this additional narrative that in addition to giving girls advice it's important that men get education as well they need to be sort of willing to learn about female experiences in a way that you know maybe in a way engage with female experiences in a way that they haven't in the past and so an example of that that we've discussed in our empower voice book club is a book called intimacy by ben dunks and essentially what it tries to do it's 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 a guide for sex from a man called ben dunks to boys teenage boys and that's an example of how men can educate as well as just be educated and i think it's great because a lot of men disengage with feminism because they just think it's them listening they don't have a role to play so this book what it does is it gives advice to men about sex that sort of unpicks how men have been conditioned so for example it plays on the idea of men finding pleasure in sex and women doing it because it gives men pleasure it actually explains why that isn't true so it takes biases that you know young men might have and it unpicks them proves them wrong that was a really inspiring example that we looked at of how yeah men men can educate as well men can talk to other men and that can be really influential a lot of times we have bubbles of you know women but what if we had bubbles of men of feminist men i think that could be really powerful 
Yes, like, I mean, men talking to each other and how men will can be better amongst each other, dismantling the patriarchy and all of the tenets of it to really just uphold the beauty of society and how it can be better. I agree. And I mean, right now, again, we're two women having this conversation. I hope that somewhere there are two men having a conversation about feminism on some podcast as well. You know, that that's the dream, right? That feminism isn't something that divides women and men, that it actually brings them together. Right. And what female voices in literature would you like to amplify? Oh, this is tough. I've got a lot of female writers that I love, but if I had to pick a couple, so there are obviously the amateur writers in dialogue who we try to amplify, you know, sort of every day through our website or social media. But in terms of authors that you might have heard of that might be more popular, one of them is Monica Radajevic. She works with the Women's Equality Party in the UK, but she also writes poetry has written a book, and I definitely recommend her work because it's sort of at the intersection of gender and politics and current events. She manages to sort of keep a lot of the reality in her poetry, but at the same time, you know, use art to sort of make you feel it, make you truly understand and engage with what's going on around you. I also love Gia Tolentino. She She's an essayist. I'm not sure if you heard of her, but she's written this amazing book called Trick Mirror. But with a lot of my favorite feminist authors, you know, it isn't. They talk about things like social media, identity, about, you know, culture related to talking about rape and just things like that. And I think her work in these areas is super interesting. I mean, even the way she talks about plastic surgery and the way women are conditioned to think that we need to be pretty. So, for example, she talks about Lululemon leggings and she talks about how they they exist to make us feel rewarded for wanting to be skinny, for wanting to be slim. But, you know, we love it. We we propagate this idea. We support it. We're unconsciously being the proponents of this idea that when you think about it, it's not necessarily, not necessarily something you agree with, that women need to be kept slim and their body needs to be kept in a specific shape. Yeah, the, the body image conversation and the body positivity conversation is something that is just ongoing, tends to go in circles because the people who need to be in the conversation are often excluded. So my next question for you is, what is the myth of male universality and the contested relationship between feminism and femininity when we were doing our email exchange? Yeah, well, that idea comes from this book called Invisible Women called Caroline Criado Perez that I definitely recommend. And it's basically the idea that through history, so like so much of what we know about history, it's just about the male experience because women's voices have been traditionally, you know, not celebrated in the same way male voices have. And so, for example, there's there's this quote that's quite popular. It's like, well-behaved women seldom make history. And it's this idea that the number of women who made a difference and were successful in history is probably the same as the number of men, but they weren't seen or remembered for it. This is something I feel really strongly about and I want to help counter. And that's part of what EHV has brought me, you know, like getting female stories out there. Yes, women are doing great things. Can we please talk about them the same way we talk about male success stories? And so this idea of this myth of male universality is the idea that, yeah, we don't always see history through the eyes of women the same way we see it through the eyes of men and 
often you could say that's super subjective, but this manifests in, so for example, Caroline Coretta Perez writes about how when there are tests done to test the safety of cars, all the dummies are male. They're modeled on male bodies. Drugs like paracetamol, Panadol, are modeled on male bodies, but they act differently in men and women. But most GPs wouldn't know that. The The size of your phone is designed for a male hand, not a female hand. So it's things like that. Those are like the real life manifestations of the myth of male universality, this idea that the world we live in is modeled on male data and male stories. Yeah, it, it, the crash test dummies for, for, for card, that was one that really stuck out to me. So, and what about the contested relationship between feminism and femininity? Yeah, so that's something that's also really interesting to me and us at Empower Voice and recently read, led a, led a workshop on it where what we did was so there, there is this index that measures gender called the BEM sex role index. And it basically has a list of 30, more than 30 characteristics. So like loyal, happy, friendly, ambitious, independent, selfless. And each of these are, each of these are either described as male, female, or gender neutral. And so what we did was we projected these onto the screen. And this was a group of women we were doing with. That we were doing this with. And we didn't tell them which was which, which were the male ones, which were the female ones. We sort of mixed them up, which were the gender neutral ones. And we said, choose the top 10 that resonate with you. And you'd be surprised that, well, would you? So many, so many women ended up having, you know, like, oh, one, identifying with one trait that was considered female and like six traits that were gender neutral and three traits that were considered male. And like, no women actually had all 10 traits female, you know, according to this index. It's sort of this idea that like the degree to which you're feminine or masculine varies based on the person. It doesn't affect your ability to be a feminist. So just because you say, oh, I have more male characteristics, that doesn't mean, that doesn't mean anything about, that shouldn't mean anything about how you view feminism. Whether you're a very feminine person and all 10 of the characteristics you identify with are traditionally feminine, that shouldn't, that, that doesn't change the way you view feminism. That leads to different personalities. You know, when you talk to different women in a room that suggests that no matter what your gender is, you can understand the logic and the rationality behind wanting to see women and men as equal because the like traits like loyalty and friendliness, you can't put them down to gender. It's more personality than gender. And what is Empower Her Voice working on? So, I'm one of the directors of Empower Voice and I focus a lot on the creative writing side of our work. And so what we've done over the past couple of years is we've been hosting creative writing contests and workshops to get more women, you know, from all around the world involved. And we've got women from over 30 countries writing for us for our magazine called Dialogue. It has been a huge effort sort of reaching people from as many countries as we can. We're continuing trying to expand that with our magazine this year. So we're not holding the contest, but what we are doing is holding a series of workshops. We're going to do creative writing short courses. We're going to try and advertise to as many people as possible, but also give loads of support to women who think this is something they could do um, and really encourage them to write, write about their experiences, um, write their reflections. So that's in terms of creative writing. We also run a big sister program and where we're growing that right now into India and Nigeria. So it's currently just been in the UK, but 
where we've partnered with schools in India and Nigeria, which is where we have other members of our board of global directors. And essentially what we're doing is we're connecting these young women who go to state schools, government schools who don't have all the opportunities that people like us have. We're connecting them with female mentors, people like Monica Radajevic, people like Caroline Corrado Perez that we can access because of our reach as an organization. And we're, we're getting them together in rooms, talking, setting up, you know, regular meetings. That's another project that we're working, expanding that. That's so wonderful to be able to have the dialogue with Dialogue, your literary journal, and also to have, to expand the big sister, little sister role. Congratulations for that. Thank you so much. It's super exciting. And we're trying to, we're trying to just reach more and more parts of the world, get more women involved. Annika Samaya, thank you for joining us to talk about Empower Her Voice. Thanks for having me, Ashley. It was a pleasure to meet you. You as well. Thank you for tuning in to today's episode of Feminist Book Club, the podcast. Want to be part of the club? Here's how you can join us. Obviously, subscribe to our podcast and leave a rating and review for Brownie Points. Follow along on Instagram, Twitter, Facebook, Pinterest, and TikTok. All of those links are in the show notes. Sign up for our newsletter to be the first to know what our next monthly book pick is. And check out our award-winning monthly book subscription service. Oprah Magazine named it one of their favorite book boxes, and Shonda Rhimes called us one of her favorite subscription boxes in general. There are multiple membership levels for any budget, and it's an excellent way to support the show and the voices you heard today. See you in the club. A well-read woman is a dangerous creature, creature, oh.